0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of our DS30 podcast. Anna here. I am joined with a new co-host of mine, Michael, who is my colleague. Hi, Michael.
1: Hi, Anna. Thanks so much. Um, and I'm really excited to be um, co-hosting the podcast with you from now on. Um, so uh, Nicholas, who was previously the co-host of the podcast, has moved on to bigger and better things. So. In replacing him, I certainly have big shoes to fill. Uh, I guess in the spirit of podcasting, big headphones to fill. Um, But, you know, I am a data scientist and data science instructor um, with Pragmatic Institute, of course, just as you are and Nicholas was. um, And I'm really looking forward to this. Me too. So today we've invited back Dr. Becky Tucker, who is a data scientist with Netflix. And we had a general conversation with her a few months ago about sort of the role of a data scientist um, and her role, her introduction to the field. Um, But today we're gonna be focusing on something that is very fresh in many people's minds, which is what do we do as data scientists when all of our expectations go out the window, when we face an unstable environment, unprecedented situations?
0: Let's jump right in. Dr. Becky Tucker, welcome to the DS30 podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, so I think we're going to start our podcast as we usually do, where we uh, have our um, guests introduce themselves and tell us uh,
2: how you got into data science. Absolutely. So as you mentioned, my name is Becky. I am currently a data scientist at Netflix, um, but like a lot of people in data science, I'm actually uh, from a different field altogether. So I did my PhD in physics at Caltech where I was an observational cosmologist studying the Big Bang. And in the latter part of my graduate career, once I realized that I probably didn't want to stay in academia, I started on a quest to understand, okay, what else can I do with this training that I have and with these skills that I have? And there were a couple of fairly, typical options open to people at the time. You could go into consulting. Uh, it was quite popular to go into uh, Wall Street. And then there was a small but growing contingent of people who were becoming these things called data scientists. And so I did a little bit of research on that and thought this some this is something that I think I'm really interested in, but I wasn't sure. Um, I ended up having a gap in my uh, academic schedule, thanks to uh, mishap with um, our experiment and the fact that the the government shut down in uh, 2014 I believe as people might recall and so I ended up with this gap in my schedule where I ended up doing the insight data science program um, so this was in 2014 so it was it was quite early days both for that program and for data science in general. but when I did it, I thought you know I still have to go back and finish writing my thesis so if I do this program and I totally hate it um I'm just on to the next thing. You know, I have to go back and write my thesis anyway. But if I love this, then I know what I want to do next. And this will help launch me into data science. And in fact, that's what happened. So I, I did that program. I worked um, I worked incredibly hard while I was there. I had a blast. I really enjoyed it. And it was really a p- pivotal for me in terms of opening up um, doors for, for interviews and also for teaching me how to interview at a tech company, which is definitely not something I knew how to do. And that is actually how I got my foot in the door at Netflix. So um, Netflix was very gracious. They gave me uh, three months to go back to school, write my thesis. And so I graduated and two weeks later started at Netflix. And then I've been at Netflix almost six years now.
0: That's awesome. I especially feel a connection here because actually my first love uh, and my undergrad major was also astrophysics, cosmology kind of thing. Then I meandered into other things, uh, but um, totally hear you here. And I love how we always have people from different backgrounds uh, here than going into data sciences from all sorts of going into data science from all sorts of directions. That's awesome. So yeah.
2: what, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I love that aspect as well. Like just the people that I, I work with on a daily basis. I work with neuroscientists and economists and people just from all these different areas. And it's really rich.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yay, data science. All right. So <laughs> what we want to talk to you about today is um, sort of two topics intertwined. But the first thing I want to start with is we want to talk to you about um, essentially how the work of a data scientist uh, and the modeling that uh, we do. A kind of a works when we're dealing with an unstable environment. Um, so it's an important big topic and we'll cover some of this today. Before we dive deep, I wanted to maybe first for any of our, of our listeners that are not so familiar with data science or machine learning, can we first talk about why are we talking about this? So how, why is the environment important for, say, a machine learning model for, for what a data scientist does?
2: Sure, I think it's important to start with with a couple of um, assumptions about our work or or maybe um, uh, why we do what we do, which is that models are an abstraction of the world that we hope tells us something useful. And that something useful could be a prediction about what we think will happen. That something useful could be an inference about how we think the world works. And so models are important to the extent that they help us do something. And so the reason that environment matters is that if your model is really an abstraction of a real world problem, um, of course, these two things are uh, intimately uh, Correlated and causal, and uh, sometimes uh, both at the same time. And uh, your model is only as good as the data that you can put into it. And since data is, in fact, directly produced by the world and directly produced by environment, uh, that has a, a deep impact on what kinds of answers you are able to uh, to get out of your model.
1: Awesome! Thanks so much, Becky. Now, you mentioned. Um... So you mentioned that models can give us, in some cases, um, predictions and in some cases inferences, um, which can lead us towards, you know, maybe more direct decision making from what a model tells us, or perhaps more insight as to how we should react um, to changes going forward. Um, and this sort of, for me, harkens back to something you said last time you were on DS thirty, uh, which is sort of these two types of data informed decisions. Um, And you mentioned sort of data-driven decisions and data-inspired decisions. Um, And perhaps um, could you talk a little bit more about that and maybe some of the, you know, maybe on the more technical side, some of the ways of thinking in data science that might relate to each of those, um, especially in unstable environments?
2: Sure. I like to draw the distinction between Data-driven, uh, data-driven decision making and, and data-inspired decision making, which is that there are uh, some cases where uh, data science and and data is just more helpful than others, and uh, and the the connection is more direct. And there are some areas where it really does need to be just a data point for a person making a decision. And a lot of this has to do either with um, the maturity of the field, the availability of data, um, and then also, you know, sometimes just the inherent nature of the field you're in. Some things are just more predictable than others. And I think, um, I think that, uh, you know, if you, this is perhaps a, a slightly a, a silly example, but um, you don't, you don't need a whole lot of human, um, human in the loop decision making, for example, uh, to predict when the sun rises, right? We have a pretty good idea of how that works. We have a pretty good idea of how that data is generated. Um, You could pretty much just have, if you needed something every day that was queued off of when the sun rises, we would feel pretty confident letting a machine make that decision. It's a pretty predictable quantity. Um, On the other hand, if you have something that say is keyed off of stock market, uh, values, uh, returns or changes there. Um, that's an incredibly sort of unpredictable um, environment. And there you might want a human being to review a decision, you know, before you decided to sell off all of your stock because some number had hit some other number, right? Um, so. There's, there's a range of, of fields, obviously. Data science is this massive field. It's in every industry now. Um, and there are uh, some decisions that we feel more comfortable um, letting um, an algorithm or something like that provide more of that decision-making power and somewhere where it is more appropriate for, for a human being to be more involved.
0: Great. Um, so before we talk about how we can deal with an unstable environment, maybe let's first talk about how we can detect that we are dealing with an unstable environment?
2: Yeah, I think that's a really um, nuanced question because I think an unstable environment could mean a lot of things. So, you know, fundamentally, I do feel like what we're talking about is a training set, testing set mismatch. Um, And that can happen because you are in an unstable environment. So, you know, right now, I think regardless of the industry you're in, everyone's data is being affected by the, uh, um, the quarantines due to the COVID situation. So, you'll see this in terms of your retail data, where everyone's retail data dropped, um, change in traffic patterns. So we saw dramatically decreased amounts of car use, um, particularly in a city like LA, um, but then ultimately, you know, that may end up maybe being an increase in car use in the, in the long run if people are afraid to use public transportation. Um, We saw massive increases in, you know, grocery volumes. There were shortages. We saw changes in behavior since people were spending so much more time at home. So um, more cooking, more um, uh, interest in at-home exercise equipment, more watching Netflix for sure. And so that's kind of an unstable environment in terms of the fact that there was really a a step function change in what people were doing. Like it's a total regime change. and I don't think that there is, you know, and again, I'm I'm just a single practitioner. And, and, uh, and I think that there are many, many more people who are experts in this field than me. But as far as I know, there is no machine learning algorithm that's going to predict a paradigm shift. Um, there are techniques you can use to identify it in your data afterwards. And I suppose I could imagine some kind of, you know, human in the loop system where you know every week you go out and uh you know query 10 economists about what they think will happen in the next week and somehow that becomes a factor into your modelers or or some something like that but but by and large um i don't know of any techniques that are going to predict a, a massive uh paradigm shift like that now another form of unstable environment that i do see is again in terms of training testing mismatch is is that um your you know you've trained a model for example and you've put it online and your online data is slowly morphing over time and becoming ever more disconnected from your your training set um or there your online data is uh different in a way that you didn't anticipate so you the, the outcome is the same typically which is that your model produces um some kind of result that is just uh, wonky or nonsense um and uh and that case the the sort of slowly evolving case there are there are more remedies right retraining more frequently um really monitoring some metrics about your training and testing set so where i've seen this particularly in my own work is that um the amount of information missingness between training and um and like your online in production data can often be quite different, so you train on some lovely complete data set where you have all the information, but then in real life, all of that information is missing uh, more frequently than you expect. And so, in particular, with like you know tree based methods, um, you can end up getting some some pretty bizarre results if you haven't properly accounted for that. Um, so there are some techniques you can use to to help with that, but I think in terms of these these big swings. Um, I, I don't think actually that there is uh, much to be done in terms of predicting, uh, predicting things like what we're currently going through.
1: Certainly, yeah, it's, it makes sense in many ways that, you know, perhaps we can't see the future, can't predict when something truly unprecedented is going to happen. Of course, you know, it, it lacks precedent. So how would we know? Um, But, you know, let's say we find ourselves in a situation like we're in now. There's a precipitating event that, you know, just causes this drastic shift. Um, As a data scientist, what do you do now? What do you do with a situation where maybe, you know, the data doesn't necessarily exist yet?
2: Yeah, I think that there are a couple of. I'm going to answer the question two ways. One is is very practical, like you know, what do I see people actually doing and and grappling with. Um, The other, I think, is a more philosophical question, which is that I think the current situation for me, at least, has exposed a lot of gaps in the way that we think about models and modeling. So I'll I'll attack the practical side of it first. So I see a lot of um, essentially the following. Uh, can, you know, people saying, can we adjust our data? Can we use, um, can we take out the effects of COVID? You know, whatever that means for the industry and the industry that you're in. So, you know, maybe you are a, you're trying to predict car sales. And so you say, well, what would our car sales have been in May? If not for the current situation so maybe you go back to the previous year and you look at the growth trends that you had been experiencing and you say, well here's the number of cars we think we would have sold um, you can you can you know imagine how that extrapolates to a lot of different industries um, I see a lot of um, essentially what I might call um, attempts to get the the counterfactual so um, what you know if if we if we had made a prediction about what April would have looked like based on our data up until that point and compare that to what actually happened um, you know assuming that your data was sort of uh, normal and predictable up until then comparing like that prediction in terms of what actually happened is maybe a way to to get at like adjustments of your data I think in the long run you'll probably see people just um, omitting data I'm of Two minds about whether or not that's actually a good idea um, to just kind of you know, in the future we'll all just drop March 2020 from our data sets um, because it is it is a true thing that happened right it it wasn't um, it wasn't a faulty detector the world really did look like that, um, but I can see how in, in future data sets it will really pull people's data around, um, which brings me to kind of the philosophical question, which is are we thinking are we interrogating our models enough um i think that what this has this current environment has exposed for me is that we might be asking a lot of the wrong questions of our models you know instead of instead of just asking uh, what will happen what do we predict will happen um i think that i'd like to see everyone move towards more nuanced questions like what is the most likely range of outcomes or what is the worst case scenario under the assumptions of this model or what is the likelihood of that worst case scenario? So I think what this highlights for me is that we're not thinking hard enough about uncertainty and risk. And a lot of the um, particularly intro machine learning materials, I think, for the sake of simplicity and I understand, but they, they tend to omit some of these things about the assumptions that go into a model. You know, I think that a lot of folks might use, for example, even just a, a linear regression um, without understanding all of the assumptions that are, are built into a linear regression You know, about almost or normality um, and how that may or may not play well when you have a data set that is um, basically uh, got a lot of extreme events in it, which is what we're seeing now.
0: That's very interesting. So the one thing that comes to my mind as I'm listening to what you're talking about is how, what's the role here of domain knowledge and expertise when you are trying to either, as you say, assess uh, uncertainty or risk or assessing whether we are in an unstable environment or not. Uh, And just sort of, I guess, in general, what's the, what would you say is the role of domain knowledge?
2: Yeah, I would say particularly in unstable environments like this, the role of domain knowledge becomes increasingly more important. It's important for a data scientist who is trying to build good models because a lot of what you're doing, and and this goes back to what I said originally, a lot of what you're doing when you're creating a model is you're trying to create some kind of abstraction of the world and necessarily you have to simplify. And it's important to know, where essentially you can take shortcuts and where you can't. Um, Is it still a good model if if I assume, for example, all of my data is Gaussian? That's an incredibly common assumption. And unless you really have a pretty deep understanding of the process you're modeling, you may or may not know whether or not that's a good assumption. Can I assume my data is normal? And so the deeper you get into that domain knowledge, the better able you're going to be to create and interrogate those models. I think it's also incredibly important in terms of decision-making. Most data science in an industry setting is happening in conjunction with some other stakeholders. So I work on the studio finance um, data science team at Netflix, so most of the work I do is done in conjunction with someone who works in studio finance. And so it behooves me to understand that domain To understand the kinds of decisions they're making, how I can help them make those decisions, what sorts of models are appropriate for that that, uh, particular problem. And I think it also helps kind of separate from the the technical side. um, It helps when I speak their language. So, um, you know, if, if I go in and they start talking to me about um cash cash flows, or you know, the time discounting of money or or something like that. And I have no idea what they're talking about. it It doesn't exactly inspire trust in me and in my work from their side. So I think a lot of it is also about the communication aspect. Um, and then also, separately, um, I think I mentioned earlier that i I sort of um am currently. Uh, preaching with the fire of the newly converted about Bayesian methods. And, and one of the things that I really adore about uh, Bayesian methods is the fact that you can actually take that domain knowledge and incorporate it into your model via setting your likelihoods and your priors and things like that. So it can actually go directly into a model in that case.
1: Definitely very interesting. Um, so if that is a little bit of the, you know, the why of, uh, you know, collaboration and, you know, using domain expertise, Maybe we could talk a little bit, a little bit about the how. You know, what does this collaboration look like? Especially if you're doing something like, you know, Bayesian modeling, what kinds of questions or what kinds of, you know, processes are you going through with these stakeholders um, to, you know, set up these sort of modeling paradigms?
2: Sure, a lot of domain expertise in building that is, um, is, uh, is. Well, I consider it part of data science, but it's it's the part of data science that I think is often um, not talked about enough. So, for example, I I mentioned before that I work on our studio finance data science team. And so one of the things that I have been doing since I I took this job is um, I literally took Coursera classes on accounting um, to understand lingo, to understand how it works, to understand where my stakeholders are coming from and that and it was actually really helpful i mean both in terms of um understanding jargon and lingo and and the kinds of questions that they're thinking about and also in terms of understanding how they think you know when you realize that um for example so much of accounting is about balance and about things balancing out to the dollar um, I think as a data scientist, I was getting really frustrated because I would have some model or something like that. And, and, um, my stakeholders would get upset that, you know, there was a, or what I considered a rounding error, basically. You know, like this doesn't, this number over here doesn't match this number over here. And I'm like, it's only off by $5. Who cares? Um, but they cared because they're accountants and they're, that is their training, right? They, they have been trained to care about every single dollar. And so it helped me adjust both, Um, Sometimes the model itself uh, in one case literally was rounding error and so I changed the way I did rounding so that the numbers were exactly the same at the end. Um, But also on how we communicate and how we set expectations. So for cases where there, there was more of like a predictive thing and it wasn't ever going to be to the dollar. It was about setting that expectation about, hey, this is always gonna vary you know, 10, 10% from what the actual sort of final result here is, or something like that. So I think that there is building your own general knowledge of whatever field you're in. Um, when I was on, I was actually on our content data science team for a few years before I had my current role. So I did a lot of studying about production. How, How do, TV and films get get made, right, to understand that. I think then there's also an aspect of spending a lot of time talking to your stakeholders, understanding their jobs. Um, I really, really like to shadow my stakeholders when they're doing sort of what they consider everyday job functions, um, to understand, you know, when you're going to this application and doing these things, why are you doing that? Um, What does that help you do? What does that enable? And sometimes the answer is something like, I do this because I have to and it's boring and I hate it. And that to me is actually sometimes a sign that like, hey, here is something I could be automating for them and I could make their job faster and more efficient and they don't like doing this part anyway. Sometimes it's like, well, I have to, to switch between these two things because, you know, I don't have this piece of information. And it's like, well, what if we had something that gave you that piece of information? Would that would that be helpful? So it helps me understand the kinds of problems that they need to solve day to day. So this was rich with advice already, I
0: feel, in how you do this in your work. It's very fascinating and I'm sure helpful. Uh, to our listeners, but maybe for any junior data scientists out there, or any of our prospective data scientists listeners, do you have sort of any advice on somebody who has, say, strong technical skills but is still developing their domain knowledge in in a new role? How can they start sort of being better at that?
2: Yes, I think the advice I would give is first about mindset, which is that I consider myself someone who is never done learning. Um, Because inevitably, the the folks I am working with, they are experts in their field. And I'm an expert in mine. But by definition, I will never uh, be an expert in their field. And so it's really incumbent upon me to to listen and to hear what they say and and to really maintain humility um, and understand that. Um, maybe, maybe I'm a fancy data scientist, but they're really the expert in the room. So, uh, I think avoiding, I think some of the occasional arrogance that you might see from extremely technical folks. I see that happen sometimes. Um, and don't forget also, I think people get really intimidated by data scientists in general. Um, I, I sometimes do sit in a room with people and they say, Oh, well, you know, I, I don't know, you, you know, you're the genius in the room with that. And I hate that actually. Um, because it's first of all, because it's not true. And, and second of all, because I want them to meet me as equals because they're the experts in their field. So I think first mindset, uh, Remember that you're always learning, um, and then I think it's it's a matter of start broad. You know, um, buy books, try Coursera courses, uh, read blog posts. I think if you're really starting from ground zero, um, get the basics first. I mean, Wikipedia honestly is a pretty rich resource. <laughs> most things about the world. And then as you get in, just keep digging deeper and deeper and deeper. You might find yourself um, having uh, interviews or, or conversations with the folks you're actually working with and really digging in deep on what specifically they do. You might find yourself in specialized textbooks or trying to pick up um, kind of a more specialized class to get that domain expertise. Um, you might also consider um, what I, ca- consider the, you might also consider like one step removed. So one of the things I realized when I switched roles um, a few years ago, so I switched from our content side of things into our studio finance. And those two things are, are separate fields, but of course they're, they're quite related to each other. And it turns out that all of that context I had from working on the content side of things um, gave me a lot of um, helpful uh, information to bring to that studio finance. So don't be afraid also to kind of take one step left or right from the actual domain you're in and understand the things that are connected to it as well, because of course nothing happens in a vacuum.
1: Definitely. And this all certainly, you know, rings very close to home for me in terms of transferring knowledge in terms of, you know, how to set up people's expectations that you want to listen to them just as much as they want to listen to you. Um, and so maybe just to get into this a little bit more, um, You know, we would be remiss in a data science uh, podcast not to ask you a little bit about the technologies and tools you use. So in particular, are there technologies, tools, platforms, products that you find really help with collaboration and communication, you know, with those domain experts?
2: I think that the, the thing that I find most helpful, and it's a little bit tool agnostic, is... Always come to the meeting or you know the event whatever it is with something concrete in hand. Um, I find that so. For example, if you have a project proposal, you think that you want to to build something for someone that's really going to um, help them. I I have found uh, is that if I just go with the project proposal, a document, say. Um, the discussion tends to get very abstract in it and it tends to wander and people end up You know just in all kinds of of places that you you didn't necessarily mean to to go um whereas when i come in with for example a really quick prototype not something i spent a ton of time on maybe half a day but something that says like here's really what i'm talking about here's how i think this would look here's how i think this would work for you the discussion suddenly becomes much more grounded um and i think that's because people are mostly visual and having something specific to look at and to see and as a starting place, right? Well, it's like, oh, I I like that except for these things, right? Could we change that, right? Or, um, you know, I see what you're thinking, but I was thinking something more like this. I find that that those discussions then suddenly become much more grounded and available. Um, Similarly, um, a really, really clear, um, well-made plot or chart you know, a picture really is worth a 1000 words. There's, there's an art to that. Um, I work with some data viz folks who are just absolute masters at those kinds of visualizations. That's extremely helpful um, in terms of communication with stakeholders. What else? No math, depending on your stakeholder. No, no, no equations that just scares people.
1: Sure, sure. As someone with a background in pure math and then pretty theoretical statistics, I have seen the, I, I know those looks, I know those responses, so I <laughs> definitely know what you mean there.
0: Maybe we can also tie that back into any advice for any junior data scientists? Don't come up with the equations and bring them to the table.
2: Yes, I mean, again, this is, this is all really, um, Situation specific, you know, if you're, if you are working with a bunch of engineers and it's a super mathy crowd, then yes, by all means, use math. Um, if you're working with a marketing department or with a finance person or something like that, like throwing all of your calculus up on a slide um, may make you feel quite smart, but it is going to tell them almost nothing. Absolutely. <laughs> yes.
1: I find it can be helpful to you know, have that stuff around in case anybody wants to see it, in case it might, you know, well, how did we get these numbers? You know, what's, the, what's the process? But certainly, you know, as you mentioned, we don't want to intimidate people as data scientists, um, certainly not to lead with it unless someone is really looking for it.
2: Yeah, and I think that's a question of audience. So if I'm presenting to my team, which is other data scientists and analytics engineers, uh, I feel comfortable using as much math as I want. Um, if i am if if it is a stakeholder centric uh, presentation or document or something like that, even if they ask how did we get to these numbers, in all likelihood, me telling them the equation I use doesn't actually answer their question they're they're typically looking for something a little bit um, they they do want the rigor of how did we get to the answer here, but you do have to adjust that to include some slightly more intuitive or analogous ways of answering the question because the math isn't particularly meaningful to them often.
0: So know your audience, right?
2: Know your audience, absolutely.
0: So this is very fascinating and I wish we could keep talking. Unfortunately we're going to have to wrap up soon, but I feel like we cannot do that without asking you what is your latest Netflix
1: binge?
2: Um, I have been really going through a lot of stand-up comedy on Netflix. So, um, I tore through all of the Trevor Noah specials, which are delightful. Um, I watched Hannah Gadsby's Nanette and then Douglas. Um, and now I am currently on to Eliza Schlesinger's uh, specials. So, I have been um, really uh, seeking, I think maybe seeking solace in a lot of stand up right now.
0: Fantastic. Dr. Becky Tucker, thank you so much for talking to us today. It
2: was my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks again, Becky.